Frankie Goes to Hollywood Bear, Born to Run. You are an In Your Face on 3CR with James. Our guests today are Terry Tinsel, Simon Ruth and Sean Paisley Collins. But we do have Terry Tinsel on the line, a legendary performer. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. It's a great pleasure to have you on board. Terry, you've been an icon of the gay and lesbian performance scene in Melbourne for decades. Where do we start with your career? Well, we can go right back to the times when I lived in King's Cross, but that's really irrelevant to my story. Um, In the 70s, I still don't know whether they do it today, but everybody has an 8 by 10 That's in the old-fashioned inches. 8 by 10 means a photograph. Modelling agencies had them. Everybody had them. And there were 8 by 10s done of all the girls that worked at Lay Girls or worked within the Lay Girls network up there in Sydney. My photograph was taken with the rest of them. And um, there was this company... And I say company because it wasn't associated with Lay Girls. They bought the name. And they were up there looking for what they call heads, which means a good-looking face. And they were going through the sheets like that, and they said, oh, that one's good, that one's good, we'll take that one if that one's available. Practically like a cattle call, really. And um, they picked me. And then I was a contract was thrown in front of me for four years, and under that contract was a morals contract. And then I was thrown down to Melbourne and presented to the management, which were horrified because they thought that when they read the back of my promo sheet that I was six foot three, not five foot three. So they hated me. <laughs> A morals contract. Tell us a bit about that. What did it say? Um, well, you had to pretend you were straight. You had to have a girlfriend. Uh, also, at that time, you could not walk anywhere in the street dressed as a female or dressed as a woman or dressed up in any bizarre way, really. It was, what was it called? Uh indecent exposure in a public place. So the cops gave you one minute to get out of the cab and into the venue or they book you. And what year are we talking about, Terry? 1973. Wow, okay. So that's going way back. Yeah, way way, way back. Uh, You you would never see uh, drag on the streets or anything like that. It was just, it was all secretive and everything like that. So I, I put up with Lagos for years and I heard that there was another venue opening down the street, which is Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, in the Prince of Wales Hotel called Pokies, and it was specifically aimed at gay people. The um, the whole set of initials hadn't even been invented then or even thought about, or gay, lesbian, or, any, or uh, homosexual, or faggot, or any of those words were very irrelevant, nothing had yet been figured it out like this today. And um, Jan Hillier and Doug Lucas were preparing to open a show. And I said, oh, I'd really like to be in that, to perform to gay people. They're much better. And um, so I started working there. And first of all, we just started off on the dance floor. This is how, the, how it grew into the monster. And I say that word, monster, that it did. Um, 
And slowly stages came and things like that and everything. And I was thinking, I was just doing it every Sunday night. Oh, the audience were fabulous. But I thought, you know, this isn't the right type of thing that gays would want to really watch because it was all tits and feathers and stuff like that, even though they were extremely appreciative. And I thought, I bet I bet they would like science fantasy or something like that. So after one night, we were all sitting back and having drinks. I said to the boss, Jen, she loved to be called Janet. Everybody who's over 50 would remember Jen. Here they are. Um, and I said, Janet, I said, I think you're heading in the wrong direction with the show. I said, they're a gay audience, and I really don't think what we're delivering is what they really want to look at. I said, can I have a go at it and make it slightly different? And she said, what are you thinking of, Terry? I said, something that's going to blow everyone's minds. And she said, you really think this is the way to go? Well, she was putting a lot of trust in me. And I said, yes, and I think I can pull it off with my partner that was a choreographer at the time. I said, and plus the sound people, I think I can do it. So she came back, she said, well, I've got 8000 bucks you can have for a budget. That was in 1982, 8000 bucks. Not particularly that much, I thought, really, what I was trying to do. And then I said, well, every, I, I called a meeting with everybody and said, everything you ever thought about drag and drag shows is going to go out the window. It's not going to exist. We're going to make it into an art form. So it ended up being called Women of the 80s, and it was open up to, like, uh, I think opening night. It got huge advertising in all the gay papers in around and everything, and it opened up to about 800 people. Then after we get complete with a huge wedding finale and, and endless other things, and it cost a lot of money as well because we had to have additional staff there was, I said, you have to improve the sound system, Janet, because we're competing with nightclub sound now. It can't sound like it's coming out of a ghetto blaster. We have to improve the lighting techniques. We've got so much to do to make it look like it's amazing. And when the show premiered that night and it finished, it was just dead silence. And I thought, oh, my God, I've made a dreadful mistake here. And then... Three seconds later, the audience were on their feet screaming. And then the next week, we had 1,400 people in it. So tell us about the costumes you wore in that extravaganza. Well, first of all, Janet was not too sure that we should be using a male's voice in the opening. And I said, well, let's forget the image, Jan. And uh, it was a Prince's 1999. And uh, I thought, I want to give the gay people something that's going to, I can't swear, effing their minds. So I approached the, the technical people and said, look, we, we can't go up and we really can't go out. So I want to kind of make an airlock like you'd see in a spaceship. And, they said, and I want it to open. And they said, well... We can do that with a roller blind and paint it like an airlock. I said, well, that's a great idea. So then I thought about the costumes, and I approached a very good costume maker, Treadle. We had three costume makers. We went suddenly went from a person that was hand-making costume makers to three professional costume makers. And I said, 
I want to make us into lizards. I don't want to want us to look like kits and feathers. And she said, yeah, I can do that. So we all reported to her in North Melbourne, and we were all put into these really tight calico courses. So they gave us figures, metal zips. Everything had metal zips, so you can imagine pressure that was on them. And then she laid us flat and covered us with this dreadful smelly glue and then quickly squeezed all these bits of uh, material in, pressed it into the whole things. And then when that had dried, she sprayed it kind of vomit yellow and purple and olive green and lime green. And we were the aliens that were coming out of the airlock. So I said, well... Then I had to try and search for that, you know, that submarine sound, like, which is, believe me, is a very hard sound to find in the 80s. You could find police sirens, you could find ambulance sirens, you could find a lot, but you couldn't get that one of, like, a submarine or something evacuating. I finally picked this up off, um, I found it on a video. Every, in fact, most of my stuff was pulled off videos or for all the soundtracks. And... um then I said, um, can we have a smoke jam? She said, yeah, you can do that. Because right now she was quite fascinated more than anything. And I said, and can we get two commercial fans? She said, yes. So that night when the overture started, and I had big overtures, and then it just went to blackness, and then you heard this like siren sound coming off, and the sound of it, which was hard to get again, I had to use brake engines from a truck to get this like the seal had been broken on an airlock. And as the airlock opened and we had it backlit, the fans started off and the two technicians threw garbage into the air and it blew out into the audience as we stepped out. So it really must have been quite a shock for the audience to see that happening. And that was the first thing. And it was there a little bit kind of psycho shock, really. And then as we got into it more and more and it got more unrealistic, I would say, or more creative. You can look at it either way. And then we went into a wedding and um, a huge wedding sequence, these huge gowns and everything. I've never seen anything as big ever, and I don't think I ever will. So much money went into these outfits. And uh, at the time, we had a contract with uh, uh, a florist in Turak, he used to make up bouquets, and we used to have these little bouquets and had these great big artificial floral arrangements. In the centre was the real deal, little tiny bouquet. And in the true wedding and everything, we just used to throw them at the audience. Well, that became the worst thing we could ever have done because anyone would kill to get one of those bouquets. They all used to be there waiting. It's you know, amazing, like 500 isn't it? Like... People. You really Wait. knew you really knew how to feed the audience. How did you how did you constantly adapt to these to these hungry well, audiences, you, giving them what they wanted? It must well, have been incredibly kind of draining on your creative resources, but also very it, stimulating and exciting. Well, it was, well, once Dan got the box office, it's called them box office receipts back, and it ran for twenty one weeks every Sunday to capacity crowds. She realised, oh, Kerry may be onto a good thing here. So then she said, I'd like you to produce more of those types of shows, which I did. And there was, of course, there was two other producers that had goes in the shows, and some people may have heard their shows to mine, I don't know. 
But what I was responsible for is I never stopped begging for more, better sound. Janet, can we afford a bit more lighting for this show? I've got a different idea for this one. We may need to have... Can we, get, can we hire a tailor? Do we know anyone that can put sleeves properly in for the male dancers? You know, all these things. And, and, and slow, it, basically, James, in those days, when you performed in front of an audience, you could say that you were the tip of the arrow and the arrow spread out and there were like up to 15 technical people that made you look like you should look to a gay audience, which to a gay audience, they wanted perfection. So you had to give them perfection. And and I became a little bit of a tyrant because I just couldn't cope with the fact that if someone fucked it up in front of that, that very critical audience, it really used to annoy me. So... In the end, where I made the company a lot of money, I ended up making a few enemies in the process because I was so pedantic. But in retrospect, I think, now, why did I even goddamn bother to put 30 years of my life into that just to disappear, to evaporate? But now it's all changed, of course. Of course, you worked with Jan Hillier for, for, for ages. She was a titan of gay and lesbian entertainment here in Melbourne for decades and a very tough nut, you know, a tough customer. It sounds like she had enormous respect for you. Oh, well, look, uh, there's, you know that saying, there's always a power behind the throne? Well, Janet has a lovely girlfriend and I used to, I used to attack it from the other end of the speaker. I used to go up to her girlfriend and say, oh, you know, gee, it'd be really good if we could have this other effect. It'd really make the show. And she said, do you think that's so, Terry? I said, yeah, 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 and just walk away, you know. And Janet had come up the week after and said, oh, guess what, Terry? And she's very butch and, and direct. I've got that effect you wanted, you know. You just had to work your way around it. Of but, course. But, you know... Of course, I'm you also sorry, performed, you know, when the community was, was being ravaged by HIV AIDS and you were at well, the forefront of so much in that era. Can you tell us about it? Well, that was the saddest part. That was the really saddest part, that you would see people in the audience that you knew that were your devoted fans. Each person had their own cheer squad. And then suddenly they wouldn't be there. And then suddenly next week, one of your other favourite people wouldn't be there. And it was horrifying. When HIV first came out, people today that in their 20s would not have no idea of the horror. And the, uh, the um, prejudice against it. And uh, it had no racial barriers. Gobbled up everyone that dared do the unthinkable, have sex with a condom, it got you. I can't remember how many people died, but my God, we lost half our audience, my audience, in a very limited time. It was, it was, it, it seemed, James, to be a different type of disease. Uh, the first thing you notice about someone is that their skin went transparent. And then you think, oh, He's got the, we called it the plague. He's got the plague. And then they invented this dreadful AZA 
the AZT or something, but I think that's the initials. Older gay people listening would remember this drug. I think it did more damage than what it did good. They seem to get sicker on it. It was just a horrifying experience. But I lived through it, and there's still people that lived through it. Now they've got boot and all those other drugs that you can have. But then they had nothing. Nothing at all. You gave... And there was no backup systems. There was nobody they could turn to. There was no one to look after them. You were considered that you had the plague. No hospital wanted you. You were lucky enough, you could, you could, I, I, this is only hearsay, but you were lucky enough you could go get a bed in Fairfield. Now, Fairfield was the infectious hospital in Melbourne at the time, which is now gone, by the way. There's no infection hospitals left. Um, and that was just filled to the capacity. You gave the community an enormous amount of, of, of comfort. Uh, and you did things like performing at, at Steamworks, the sauna. That was pretty amazing. Well, that, um, if I can tell you a funny story, um, uh, are you censored or what's, what's the business with what you can and cannot say on your program? Yeah, you can't say the F word maybe too often or the C word or defame anyone, but never, apart from that, never, you're pretty good. Never the C word. Um, yes, well, we, we, one night, Doug Lucas and I actually got invited to Steamworks to do a show and I said, oh, Let's do this. Let's be very camp. So we're doing this little number together, which is kind of Amish Night and Dixie, really, when I think about it. And all these guys are sitting there, and they're all sitting there with their uh, um, towels around them, like that. From them looking, from them looking to us, it's fabulous. From us looking to them, we're looking at them. We're looking just nothing but a sea of penises. <laughs> wow. But it was so important for, for rallying the community, but also giving, you know, information about safe sex. Yeah, well, um, we ended up doing... I ran my course of everything I could do, and finally, in the end of it, I said to Jenna, I want to do something that's so similar to Broadway, and we did a thing called The Guardian that <clears throat> ended up costing 80000 Pardon me. <clears throat> and that's when Jenna said after opening night, and two nights later, she said, you've got to stop the spending. And I said, well, I've gone about as far as I can go. And then uh, she said, oh, can you do one more show? And I said to the producer, to my other semi-producer at the time, I said, I'm so over it. I said, we put so much time and effort into that goddamn show. She took the master, censored half the dialogue out of it, so no, 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 no made no irrelevant sense to an audience watching it. She destroyed half the lighting. I was very upset how she created because once I sold it to her, it was hers. She could do what she wanted with it. I was very upset how she destroyed that show. So I said in actually in quite a vicious way, I said, let's make the most tackiest, shittiest, awfulest, dreadfulest drag show you've ever seen in your life and give it to her. And he, they said, oh, Terry, you can't do that. So evil. I said, no, let's do it. So as we started to do it, I looked at the choreographer halfway through mounting and I said, am I thinking something that this is not so as bad as I'm led to believe it is? And they said, I think you might be on another winner. I said, oh, don't tell me that. I didn't want that to happen. They said, yes, you're on. 
So then I realised it was going to be a winner. And by this time, Renee Scott, which has since passed away and known with older people at least to be a legend of all legends, um, was, uh, said to Jan that unless she does pre finale, she was not doing it in the show. She was doing a little bit of an iffy bit, really. But she was extremely popular, and I knew if shows had to work, you had to make Renee happy. So I, I found this bunk for leaving on a jet plane that still wasn't an older gay people's favourite thing we've ever seen. And the other guy said, don't give it to her, don't give it to her. She doesn't deserve it. No, 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 she'll distrust it. Love, she is the star. She gets the best material. It's not up to you. I have to make the show work, and Renee's a prime thing that makes the shows work. So I thought... Right, she's doing leaving on the jet plane. She's just standing there for the whole thing. How am I going to make the audience, apart from her being brilliantly good at it, how am I going to make the audience compelled to watch her? So I asked all the technical guys around and said, we've got some good ideas. So they said, we have a flat mirror ball. Now, if you put a special, that means a key light that goes in a special place. Above the mirror ball, behind her, and we smoke it, when she's doing the number, a rainbow effect will shoot out from behind her like angels or when you see God depicted sometimes in that way. And all she has to do is just do movements, but she must be in a fishtail, so it hides everything. I said, yeah, that sounds great. And then Renee happened to say, oh, I've got a hairdresser, and she brought in this six-foot-long piece of hair. And I said, oh, Renee, if you can get that in a ponytail... In the time allotted, you have to change. You just have to stand on your side and do movements, and that hair falling to the ground, they'll pass out. It's fabulous. And I said, right at the end, all you have to do is just turn your back to the audience, lean back, and there'll be a technical guy in front of you. He'll hit you with smoke, and as the jet engines take off, you'll just disappear into nothing. Terry, we are out of time. You are a true right, legend okay. of the Melbourne entertainment scene. You've done so much for the community. I know there's people that are just, you know, hanging off your every word as I am. Uh, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Uh, it's been a great privilege. Thank you so much for your time today. I really You're welcome, Joe. Bye. The wonderful Terry Tinsel there. You are and in your face on 3CR. Are you trying to get right now? Yeah. 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 I'm my friend.
Velvet there. Love comes in spurts. You are on In Your Face and 3CR with James. Joined by Simon Ruth, the CEO of Thorn Harbour Health. Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. It's really great to be here. It's wonderful to have you on board. Thorn Harbour has turned, or is about to turn 39. You're entering your 40th year. Wow. Yes, um, it was it was the 12th of July, so it was this week. Fantastic. Yeah. What change you've gone through? I mean, it was the Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Centre. We're just chatting with Terry Tinsel about the huge um, devastation of the HIV AIDS epidemic on the community. It's still there, but things have changed a lot. Tell us about your work. Um, things have changed a lot, and that was a fantastic interview. And uh hilarious and I could have listened to that much longer myself um, but you, you still heard the raw emotion coming through when Terry was talking about those days and AZT and the impact it was having on people pre-96 when we made the changes um, so it, it is still you know those early days are still very real for, for a lot of people and, and particularly a lot of our life members and people have been around for quite a while um, we still have a lot of our life members involved in the organisation and we still technically are the Victorian AIDS Council and the Gay Men's Health Centre and that's for about another month. Um, and then we're going through a company, we're, we're going from two associations to two companies. And so we'll be changing at that point. Um, and all the members will be members of VAC GMHC Limited. And then there will be another company called Thorn Harbour Health, um, which will provide all the services. Um, so we will remain a community controlled organisation. We'll, we'll still have a member elected board. Uh, we have about 450 members. So I think nationally that puts us in about third place after Joy and Mardi Gras. Um, and and every year we have contested elections and and a lot of a lot of interest in being on our board and and, and you know the board does direct the organisation so um, over the last few years we have seen a lot of change we've gone from being what was essentially a HIV organisation ten years ago um, working mostly with gay and bisexual men but not um, solely um, and today we you know we have Equinox the largest trans health service in the country. Um, you know, we have uh, we last night we launched a, a women's drinking program called Rethink the Drink, trying to assist women to prevent developing alcohol issues, lesbian and bisexual women. Um, we have a range of other programs in family violence and drug and alcohol, and, and we're also in South Australia now, so we're, we've moved beyond Victoria. It's a time of huge change and a weird time as well. We're still in the pandemic, COVID is surging. But we also have this strange monkeypox epidemic that's happening in, in Europe and North America and it's come here to Australia. What can you tell us about monkeypox? Uh, so monkeypox is originally from Central and West Africa. Um, you catch it from rodents, actually. It's, it's, it was first identified in monkeys, which is why it's called monkeypox, but it's actually rodents that spread the disease. Uh, and it is there's 33 cases in Australia. All those cases are being managed. Uh, most of them are in isolation. A, a few of the people have um, now recovered from it. Um, and it's largely being spread. It's, it's similar to smallpox, though it's not as lethal as smallpox. Um, you come out in a rash, mostly. Um, there's a whole range of symptoms. One of the really difficult things about this is the current outbreak looks different around the world, and different countries are reporting different things, and it all looks different to how it looks in Africa. Um, so in Africa, it's much more lethal. No one has currently died from the current outbreak. There's around 7,000 cases worldwide already. Um, no, there hasn't been a single death. And it's 98% amongst gay and bisexual men and a few others. Um, it is the rash that is infectious. So you, you get pustules or depending on which country you're in, it might look like pimples, it might look like ulcers, um, it might look like blisters, but when it bursts, it's actually the mucus from those that is infectious and that's what spreads the disease. So it's actually skin-to-skin -skin contact. 
And it's um, mutating. And it's mutating, yes. Yeah, so it's looking slightly different. Um, there is one paper that's talking about some men who've only had it internally. There hasn't been any rash present externally on their body, so it's only been inside their anus or inside their mouth where it's been present. So it's very hard to, to pick that up and realise that's what's going on. Um, it's also, it can be confused with herpes and syphilis, and that has occurred in Australia already. People have thought they've had a herpes outbreak and tried to treat it and then come in and discovered they've got monkeypox. Um, and there's also other symptoms like fevers and headaches and sore throat and swollen lymph nodes, but a lot of cases don't have those present. So at the moment, we're just saying if you have an unusual rash, particularly if you've been travelling recently and you've been sexually active while you've been overseas, you, you need to come in and get that checked. And, and in Melbourne right now, if you go to Melbourne Sexual Health or any of the three larger clinics, central um, Centre Clinic R1, um, Northside and Pram Market, when you're doing a, a herpes or a syphilis check, they'll also check for monkeypox. Um, to ensure that, you know, that's not what's spreading. Uh, of the 33 cases that we have in Australia, 31 of those um, contracted it overseas. So there's been two people who've picked it up within Australia. Everyone else came back to Australia with it. Um, and it is Northern Hemisphere Pride. It is a time when a lot of people are flying to Europe and North America and having a good time and then coming back. So um, the, the outbreaks are largely Europe and North America based. It's uh, Canada, Montreal, New York, San Francisco, it's all the normal cities, Toronto, and then UK, Madrid, Portugal, Germany, Israel. Um, so they're the sorts of countries where you probably need to be a bit more careful. So how do we manage it? I mean, it's not a crisis here. Uh, we don't want to put panic into people. Uh, should the government be offering vaccines? Like, how should the, the community be responding? The, the government should be offering vaccines, and it's something that I spoke to the government about this morning, that they should be offering vaccines. And ourselves and Acon and Afeo and others are raising this every couple of days with government that um, we need to have the vaccine available. There, there, the vaccine is essentially the smallpox vaccine. Um, the, the older one uh, is more lethal than, than the disease itself, so they're saying we're not going to use that because you're more likely to die from the vaccine than from the disease. There is a newer vaccine, though, which is the one being offered in New York and the UK, which people might be seeing on social media that people are getting the vaccine. That one hasn't been approved in Australia yet, so we know that the government's negotiating with the drug company to purchase it. Um, we just haven't heard the outcome of that yet. So the vaccine should be made available. Um, the disease, though, goes away after about three weeks. So you might be in pain, and a lot of people have reported a lot of pain from the rash while they've had it, and it, it appears on your genitals, and it can be on your face and your hands and your torso. It can be, and also in your mouth. Um, so it can be a painful rash, but it does go away after somewhere between two and three weeks. And what medications can people be given to alleviate well, that? Well, at the moment, it, they're just treating the, the pain, essentially. Um, there, are, there are some medications which could assist with the rash, but the rash goes away anyway. Um, and given that there have been no fatalities, that they're, they're just generally just treating the symptoms and the pain that people are suffering. The real risk with monkeypox, though, is if we, if we do have a real outbreak in Australia, it can transfer back to rodents. So it can go from human back to rats and mice, and once that occurs, we'll be stuck with it. So then it'll pass between rats and mice, and we'll just have outbreaks um, pop up from time to time, which is exactly what happens in Central and West Africa. So that's why we need everyone, even though you know it's not fatal, you might think, well, it's no big deal that I've got it, but we need you to come forward and isolate so that we can track what's going on, because um, we don't want it to end up back in animals. Once it's back in animals, we'll never be able to get rid of it. And then it could be a risk to children. So they don't, there are no children in this current outbreak, but in Africa, monkeypox is a particular risk 
to children. Um, so we, we don't want it to, to end up in that situation where we lose control. That's frightening. Mm. <laughs> I'm just listening to that, but it really shows that we need the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, we need the vaccine. Um, hopefully we'll hear an announcement in the next couple of days that the vaccine is going to be made available. Um, if we don't hear that, I imagine there's going to be a lot of community anger, um, also coming from Thorn Harbour and Acon and others um, who've been arguing for the vaccine. We, all, we also asking people to isolate for three weeks. Um, we also need supports to assist people to isolate. If you're a young guy in your 20s and you've just spent six weeks in Europe or possibly longer, you're probably not coming back to Australia with a lot of money. You need to go straight back to work. So if we're saying you need to isolate for three weeks, we need to do what we've done with COVID and assist you to pay your rent and feed yourself and, and, and you know, be able to live during that period. And are those government supports currently available? doesn't sound like they are. Uh, it's a case-by-case case situation. There's no strategy or system around it yet. There's been so few cases. Um, I think they're hoping that they won't have to develop a, a strategy like they are with COVID. Um, but certainly in the UK, we've seen Terence Higgins Trust and some of the others say with the number of cases, we, we now need real commitments from government that we will take care of our community. Of course, having the vaccine is one thing, but then there's the rollout. What are your thoughts about how organisations and the government are going to roll it out? Uh, well, you know, we, we've just had two years of COVID rollout. So, you know, if there's one thing the government knows how to do, it, it's to roll out testing and vaccines. Um, we have said that our facilities are available. We've got the clinic at the Pride Centre and the other clinic in Abbotsford that we're happy to make our clinics available. Um, I'm sure the other... Um, queer clinics would also be happy to do that and there's community health across the state as well so ro the rollout shouldn't be that challenging um, the probably the biggest issue will be there'll be limited amounts of vaccine and so the question will be who gets vaccinated first um, and, and there's competing arguments about whether if you know you've got a positive case do you vaccinate everyone around the positive case or do you vaccinate every gay man who's planning to go to Europe you know so there's there's different arguments around who you would look at offering the vaccine to first it's also a two-dose vaccine that needs to be taken 28 days apart so um, it's not going to be a simple coming in one shot and, and, and you're right. So from a policy level, how is the government and, and, um, and community stakeholders, organisations like Thorn Health, how are you going to harbour health, how are you going to resolve those kind of, you know, well, how do we do this? Uh, well, Victoria has a, an incident management meeting that's held every Thursday. Um, federally, that there are, I think there are two separate meetings being held every week. Um, I'm aware that New South Wales is having a weekly meeting as well. South Australia, where we also are, is about to kick off their first meeting. They've only had one case so far. Um, so there is a lot of conversation. And, and plus, uh, you know, the opportunity to look at what's going on in New York and the UK and, and other places. I was emailing New York yesterday and they were sending me through who, who they're vaccinating and how they're planning to vaccinate people. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of sharing, particularly amongst, you know, LGBTI communities. We stick together right across the world um, and we tend to know who each other are. So there, there's a lot of sharing of activism and a lot of sharing of policy. Sounds like there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes at Thorn Harbour in relation to monkeypox. Uh, the, yes, there's a lot of work uh, across all the AIDS councils nationally. Um, it's, a, it's probably two days of my week at the moment. Um, and, and, you know, nine weeks ago, we'd never heard of this disease. And we the first time we heard of it, we sort of had a laugh about it. And then the next day, I spent four hours in meetings about it. So um, it, it, it has stepped up dramatically. Um, and if you look at any of our websites, whether it's the Thorn Harbour website, Drama Down Under, Down, Down and Dirty, every one of them will have a monkeypox page, which is the first thing you see when you, you um, log on right now. Thorn Harbour excels at community sexual health campaigns. Uh, the government needs to fund you to do some monkeypox community aid, it sounds like. 
thank you, James. You know, that would be wonderful. Um, at, the mo- at the moment, we're doing our best. Uh, but we have pointed out to government, the more we spend on monkeypox, the less we're going to be able to commit to our regular campaigns, such as our HIV campaign or our sexual health testing campaigns and the other ones. Um, so they, they do need to start considering this and taking it seriously. And, and the, the last thing we want is to be five years down the track and have endemic monkeypox, you know, moving around amongst rodents in the country, when if they put a few dollars up front now, we, we could have that impact now and, and prevent that from ever occurring. Especially alongside endemic COVID as well. It's an awful lot for the community to deal with. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, been, it's been a challenging couple of years. Simon Ruth, thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. Thank you for your work uh, educating us about monkeypox. Before you go, the highlights of your 40th birthday, anything you can tell us coming up? Oh, we're working on that now. So I imagine there's going to be an exhibition of some sort of our work. We've done a lot of very visual work over 40 years from protest posters right at the start through to the outdoor campaigns, um, possibly some sort of fundraising ball, and, and then we'll be looking at other events. And, of course, we were formed at the Laird on the 12th of July, 1983. It was a, a meeting held at the Laird where, um, you know, Alison and um, Adam and Phil and a bunch of others formed the original board. So, you know, we'll, we'll be bringing back all of our life members and our founding board and, and celebrating Um, those opportunities and and also looking at the lead and how we can incorporate them. Fantastic. Simon Ruth, thanks for your time this afternoon. Thanks, James. Chatting with our Simon Ruth, CEO of Thorn Harbour Health. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Jebediah. Were you left out by your friends? Or were you lost for words when everybody finally told you what they thought? You can't keep up with the trend. It makes you lose for somehow
Jebediah, Leaving Home, You Are an In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, director Sean Paisley Collins' play Shory is currently showing at Chapel Off Chapel. And Sean joins us on the line. Sean, welcome to the show. It's um, been a tough week for you with COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, um, what's the word, like really terrible timing um, just because I tested positive um, on Wednesday, which was, yeah, like I literally, we did we had, our te- we had our tech on Monday and then our dress on Tuesday and then I was all, you know, oh, it's going to be so good opening night and then, uh, yeah, couldn't couldn't go, unfortunately, but uh, that's all right. <laughs> and your directorial debut as well after a stellar career that you've had acting on the stage. <laughs> oh, I don't know about stellar career, but, um, yeah, I've been lucky to be in some, um, some pretty amazing shows. Uh, most recently, I think you... Um, did you speak to Darby? I'm pretty sure about Dad Jeans. Dad um, Jeans, yeah, an incredible yeah, two-hander. Yeah. That, that was an awesome, awesome piece um, that I just feel so, you know, lucky and privileged to have got to be part of because Darby is such a dear friend and someone I've known for years, and you know, just to sort of um, see them have developed as much as they have um, professionally and you know, personally as a friend, that was just so cool to work on a project like that with them. And I just think it's so beautifully written and. Yeah, it was just a really amazing piece to get to be part of. So, and again, like doing it during um, a global pandemic, we were so lucky. Lucky, I think lockdown had literally finished like a week or like a few days before we opened. So it was like a miracle that um, that we actually finally got on. You also did a production at La Mama. I think it was about Ned Kelly. It had a few COVID stop starts as well. Yeah, yeah, that was um, yeah, that was <laughs> yeah, that was like the never-ending story. Um, yeah, um, Suba, who was um, the incredible kind of creative genius behind the whole thing. Um, we originally were going to do it, uh, I believe, in 2020, and it was postponed um, four times, and we had three cancellations, which is just, you know, completely insane. So we ended up performing it, yeah, like a year and a half or something after the initial time that we were meant to perform it. And, I mean, that was just ultimate catharsis, <laughs> you know, for us as actors. Um, getting to finally put that piece on, um, I think the audience that you know came and saw it could probably feel it on a whole other level, you know, in terms of um, everything kind of falling into place. And yeah, again, we were just kind of kind of couldn't believe it that we actually you know got to do it. I'd never I'd never had to learn a script like that, you know, three or four times over nearly two years. It was pretty hectic. Of course, uh, Shory is currently showing at Chapel of Chapel. You are the director. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so um, it's basically a retrospective um, and a sort of very, I'd say, affectionate, um, you know, sort of half biopic of um, Tony Shaw, the Collingwood um, captain or, or former Collingwood captain um, of Collingwood, um, who took Collingwood to win the grand final in 1990 um, after 32 years of you know, not making it to the grand final. Basically, they, they won after 32 years. And it was a huge deal, not only for Collingwood, but for football in general. And basically, the play is kind of about Tony's life, but it's also about Collingwood and, like, what it means to the fans. But then, you know, the whole thing is kind of a metaphor um, for the community, I suppose, of football and the family of football and, and how much it sort of brings people together 
and um, the kind of passion of it, I suppose. Um, but the thing that really um, drew me to it originally was um, there's a bit in there that is quite um, heavy, I suppose, because it explores men's health and men's mental health, which is something I'm particularly passionate about um, and experienced with. And um, essentially what happened was two quite serious tragedies happened to Tony Shaw. Um, one was a really good friend of his who played for Collingwood, um, Darren Mullane. He was killed in a tragic car accident. Um, well, I say tragic, but the kind of... Sorry, I'm already on onto a rant. But um, the story behind it is, is maybe half tragic, half... You know, it's sort of up to interpretation, but he was quite a quite a loose unit, Darren Mullane, um, you know, beloved on the field because he was very a good footballer and a larrikin and whatever, but off the field, you know, certainly garnered um, a reputation for being kind of larger than life and, you know, didn't do anything by halves. Um, so, yeah, but he was in a, he was in a car accident um, from um, drink driving. So I wanted to explore that a little bit in terms of the kind of, you know, there's things in there about toxic masculinity, there's things about men's mental health, and then the most serious thing that happened to um, to Tony Shaw, um, which is something that was also quite close to my heart, um, is that his brother actually took his own life, um, Kelvin, his youngest brother. Um, and, um, you know, that was just devastating. Um, so, yeah, there's some more serious pathos stuff in there too, but it's mostly a sort of engaging or hopefully engaging, entertaining, um, you know, retrospective on Tony's life and also Australia in like the 70s and 80s and what football means to Australians. And football is such a powerful tool for educating the community about so many things. You know, it's not just the sport. There's also the incredible social power that football has and that can really be used for community education about things like mental health. Yeah, yeah, that was our hope. Well, well, that was my hope. I I have actually worked with Neil Cole, the playwright, um, previously before um, as as an actor. Um, he He wrote a couple of plays about the Labor Party um, where I played Paul Keating, among other um, other sort of Labor <laughs> prime ministers. But, um, yeah, firstly, I did a noble cause at La Mama Courthouse, and then I did um, Keating's Republic, we did for the Comedy Festival. Then I also did two plays at um, Chapel of Chapel at the end of 2019 about the Holocaust. So I'd worked with Neil quite a bit, and um, and we worked quite well together. Um, and I had assistant directed a couple of those um, previous shows, but this was, yeah, the first time that I was really sort of taking the reins and directing myself. And we had conversations about, you know, what we really wanted sort of Shory to be about. Um, and on the face of it, it is, you know, just a sort of biopic or whatever um, love story to Collingwood. But, yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. And I think in many ways, um, I was saying this to Neil the other day, it's probably the football community of all communities that really need to... Um, you know, look at things like men's mental health, you know, because I think, of course, men and particularly Australian men, um, you know, there's a real, there's obviously there's a lot of that toxic masculinity um, that comes into it. And I think, you know, anything that's kind of particularly, I suppose, jingoistic or that like tall poppy syndrome is, um, you know, can be particularly damaging. So I guess my hope with this play was to kind of, to look at mental, men's health and men's mental health and sort of, you know, um, explore it in a way that wasn't sort of too confronting, but sort of confronting enough so that they can really sort of, you know, start to sort of have that conversation quite seriously. Because as I put in the um, in the director's notes, these things are, you know, just as prevalent now as they were then, 
you know, in terms of, um, you know, male suicide and, and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I just, it was something that I, I was really interested in exploring and, and making sure that it wasn't just sort of a play about footy, but there was a lot more to it than that. And Neil really is a champion playwright when it comes to the cause <laughs> of, of, of mental health uh, and, yeah. you know, is not afraid to touch on it. Uh, and it sounds like your collaborations with him as an actor have kind of created this situation where, where your transition to directing has been quite seamless. Yeah, it has felt that way. Um, yeah, it has felt that way. Um, I think I, when I first read the script, I was a bit like, oh, well, actually, originally Neil wanted me to play Tony Shaw um, because, you know, I, he just worked with me before and, you know, I was just one of the people that he approached and I sort of said, I don't think I'd be right for it. You know, I just didn't feel like I was the right fit for like quite a few reasons, um, apart from the fact that I look nothing like him. But I was also just, yeah, not not thinking that it was sort of the right role for me. Um, but then that's when Neil came to me and said, oh, would you like to direct it? And at first I was like, oh, it's me directing a play about, you know, Tony Shaw and Collingwood, like football, like it's such a, you know, different kind of world. But then, yeah, when I read it and then, and we had conversations about it and I knew that there was a lot more to it, you know, than that, um, that's when I was really kind of interested in seeing, what, you know, what can we do here? What can we sort of explore that's, um, you know, that's deeper? And I've already had some nice um, feedback from people who aren't, you know, footy fans who've already been like, oh, it's got a lot more substance and heart and kind of uh, poignancy and pathos than I think that they were expecting, which was really nice. It sounds like you're incredibly passionate about this play and its uh, its potential and its its strength as a vehicle for community education. Yeah, I think I think I don't know. I think you sort of have to be passionate about and and put um, you know 110 percent in whatever you're doing. I certainly try to be. I mean, for example, creatively, I've also designed the set, um, which is kind of you know, more out of, um, was it necessity than, than anything? But um, but I love that kind of stuff. And because I'm a lover of all things kind of vintage, um, it kind of links into, you know, talking to you. Um, I wanted to make sure the kind of 3CR, because there's a the 3CR is featured in, in the play itself. Um, we have Sadie, who is uh, kind of the personification of or sim- the symbol of um, everything kind of Collingwood. You know, she runs the Collingwood show at 3CR on, on the radio station. And then she also is like the cleaning lady, at, um, at the Collingwood Football Club, and you know she's got she wears many hats. She's got her fingers in many pies. That's amazing. <laughs> there's a three CR link in Shorey. Yeah, yeah, there wow. is. Yeah, there's, there's maybe four or five scenes where um, yeah, Neil Neil wrote that. So because he wrote that, I was like, oh, that that could that could be really fun. So so what I did is um, you know, I got a desk and I got a rug, and we basically got these beautiful um, they're actually mine, but I put these kind of. Um, 70s style burnt orange chairs you know I wanted it to have a real 70s 80s you know like kind of idyllic um, what 3CR you know kind of would have been like in the 70s and 80s Um, so I had a lot of fun kind of creating that Um, we had like a record player on the desk and that kind of thing so yeah I don't know I I really liked building the world of it because um, a lot of that stuff really kind of interests me and and I really liked Sadie as a character because she's very you know kind of no, no bullshit like salt of the earth um, and then her, her husband, Wacker, I think it's easy, and a lot of people do, you know, with things like Collingwood or Collingwood supporters, um, it's particularly arty, you know, arty creative people. We, we sort of write football off or we write those people off as being, you know, uh, dim or whatever. 
but it's like, but in reality, they really are like, you know, they make up the backbone of Australia itself. Um, and that was really important to me to sort of bring out that, you know, the heart of it, really, this, the sort of salt of the earth quality of these people and, and not have them come across as sort of caricatures. You know, I really wanted them to be real people. Um, so, yeah, working with Neil again um, on that was, um, was a lot of fun. And the actors have been amazing. Um, Anthea's been incredible as Sadie. Um, it's been absolutely amazing to see her develop, you know, that character. She's, she's brought more to it than, you know, I, I could have ever <laughs> directed her to, to do as well, you know, beyond that. And Mike has been amazing as, um, as, as Tony Shaw. He also very much looks for the part, which is always handy. But, um, but yeah, he really hits those beautiful notes in the more tender and poignant parts because there's two pieces in the play, which are my favorite parts. One is which, um, Tony Shaw actually gives like part of a eulogy um, about Darren Mullane. So you sort of, you know, the idea is we take you theatrically to that moment of him giving the eulogy at the funeral. Um, and it's a particular line without sort of spoiling anything, which is my favourite line um, in the whole play probably. Um, and the reason I wanted to take it on that I, I love that Neil wrote is that um, we, have a, we have a thing in this country that we, um, we don't, we, um, what is it? We have a thing in this country where we can't say how we truly feel. We don't know how to say I love you. And I just, you know, I thought that was incredibly poignant and very Absolutely. true. Even for Australian men, I think. Sean, we're um, going to have to leave it there because it's almost five o'clock, so we're rapidly oh, no, running well, out of time. But I could chat with you all day about this play, and you're going to have to come <laughs> to 3CR and see our 80s turntable in the oh, studio when that. you're feeling better. <laughs> and, of course, um, Shory runs at Chapel of Chapel, staging there right now until July 24. Sean Paisley-Collins, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR and hope you're feeling better soon. No worries. Thank you, James. Take care. Cheers. Thank you very much. Sean Paisley Collins there. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with the Friday Rave. We will catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.